part of the Southern culture is like, you greet people when you pass them on the street. Like you would never not. It's rude. If you're in enough distance with somebody, if you're close enough that they could hear you and see you, you should say hello. Um, and, you know, I walk around my neighborhood in, in, in Boston and like, I might as well be invisible to about 80% of the people. Like I say, hello, I smile, make eye contact. And it's just like, they like look right through me. Right. And I'm like, what? This is a very odd. I don't understand it. Like it's okay to acknowledge people's humanity. Like that's really all right to do. Welcome to the Drew Perlman Show. Think of this podcast as the antidote to the fear, the noise, and the talking heads in the news. The show features an entertaining blend of ancient wisdom, empowering ideas, and cutting-edge, healthy living science to optimize your health and your life. Okay, let's get started. Nima Avashia was born and raised in Southern West Virginia to parents who immigrated to the United States. She has been a civics and history teacher in the Boston Public School since 2003. Her first book, Another Appalachia, Coming Up Queer and Indian in a Mountain Place, was recently published this past March 2022. And as I was telling Nima, I really, really, well, first of all, welcome. Let's, let's, let's start there first. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Drew. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to be here with you. I, I was telling um, Nima that uh, I really, really enjoyed her reading her book, Another Appalachia. So, so those of you who haven't read this book, it's just, it's just, it's so well written. It's easy to read, but there's just, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of meaning behind it. But it's just a great, it's a great read. Well, I'm glad you think so. I hope other people think so too. You know, so the book, um, Nima, it's it's written as like a collection of essays. Um, talk about the evolution of how did it all? I mean, did you write the essays first? Did how, how did it all come? How how did another Appalachia happen? How did it all come together? That's a really good question. Uh, I definitely was writing essays before I knew there was a book. I didn't know there was a book. Period. I actually didn't know there was a book. Um, I was writing stories about the place where I grew up, um, and that was motivated in large part by the publication of another book, um, Hillbilly Elegy, which came out right before the 2016 election. Um, it's written by a man named J.D. Vance, who says he's from Appalachia, but he's not. Um, and he had written this book that was being used as this explainer for the place that I'm from, right? This book explains why people in Appalachia vote the way they do. It explains the culture. It explains the people of this place. And I read that book and I was like, I don't recognize anyone in this book. Um, this isn't where I grew up. This isn't the people that I know. Perhaps it's the people he knows and the place where he grew up, but it's not definitive in the way that it was being made to be. And so I started to write essays to kind of map like my experience of growing up in Appalachia as a child of immigrants. Um, and my dad worked in chemicals, not in coal. And we lived in a kind of bedroom community about 20 minutes outside of the capital. We didn't live in an extremely rural place, right? There were just a lot of ways in which my experience of Appalachia was different from the sort of story he'd mapped out. I started writing these essays and then I was taking classes at a place called Grub Street here in Boston, which is a nonprofit that supports writers. Um, and people in my classes started to say, oh, there's a book in here. Um, these, these essays, they have themes in common, right? There's an arc that's sort of forming here. And so really it was in that conversation with other writers 
that I came to realize that these weren't just one-off essays, but that there was in fact like a bigger story that was being told, a story of another Appalachia, a different place from the place that was rendered in Hillbilly Elegy and a different place, I think, from what most people kind of conjure in their minds when they think about Appalachia. Because for most people, when they think about Appalachia, they think about poor white people in the mountains. That's sort of the mainstream narrative around Appalachia. And I'm writing a story about um, Indian immigrants in chemicals and healthcare. And so there's just a different story to tell, I think, about that place and about who all lives there. That's awesome. And, uh, you know, and there were some, there were some really some some important themes that I took away from the book. And, and one of one of the first ones that I was this idea of nostalgia. And, um, you, you know, you you write one of your definitions of it, um, this a sense of missingness of lost lovers or homes, the love that remains even after objects of that love are gone. And Nima, one of the things that struck me was, I mean, you certainly don't sugarcoat the fact that you experienced racism and discrimination and, um, but yet you still have this love of this place. And, 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 and in some ways it seems like the love outweighs the hate. Um, I'd love you to just describe the nostalgia that even right now that you feel for Appalachia, App, see, I call it Appalachia, but I don't know, Appalachia, <laughs> um, West Virginia. The, so the nostalgia that you, you, you have for this place. Yeah, I have a mentor who says that nostalgia, nostalgia is a disease. And I think <laughs> I, I, I definitely have the affliction. Um, but I think that sometimes people think of nostalgia as painting like a really rosy picture. And I don't think that's what I did in the book. Um, I certainly talk about the things that were hard, but I feel like in my experience, um, the hard was outweighed by the good. Um, there, for every incidence of racism that was sort of like targeted at me, I could give you like a hundred other incidents of people like showing so much love and care. And so I think that's kind of why the perspective is the way it is. Um, I think that it really depends on your experience in a place and it, it depends on those ratios, right? Some people, the ratio of pain is a lot higher than the ratio of joy or love that they experience in a place. And that means that when they walk away, they don't want to think about it or go back to it or feel any connection to it. For me, I just had so many coaches and neighbors and mentors and people who were like family to me. Um, that even though there are these hard things that mark my experience growing up in Appalachia, there's also just a lot of love in there. Mm. Um, and the love to me is the kind of thing, you know, I think you can, you can with therapy and support and all kinds of things, you can process through trauma. Um, and so that has been work, but the love sort of persists sort of through all of that. So, so I mean, when you think of it, when you think of Pamela's circle, or when you think of this place, you just have you you have that nostalgia. You have that fond that really um, fondness, fond memory. I do. Uh, it's complicated by the present day reality, mm -hmm. right? Which is also that um, that Pamela circle that I grew up on. It's not there anymore. I mean, physically, it's there. I can return to it, but the people who live in those houses aren't the same people the material conditions of that neighborhood are not the same as they were when I was growing up, right? So there's also this interesting experience of like, you really can't go home again. Um, you can be on the same street in front of the same house and it doesn't mean that anything about what's happening in that place is the same anymore. And so I think for me, what's been interesting, and I think this is true for lots of people who have um, left Appalachia and then come back is that um, 
you can't really miss the level of pain that folks are in now. Um, there is just a level of systemic disinvestment um, by the state and federal government that has left people in really, really rough shape. And so my nostalgia is also tempered by reality, right? Which is that um, fundamentally, it's not the same place. Uh, the first essay, which is called Directions to a Vanishing Place, I think it gets at that, which is, I grew up in this place that was pretty healthy um, and people had work and people were engaging in, in sort of like civic life in lots of different ways. Uh, and a lot of that has been stripped away. And mm -hmm. so going home, um, every you go home and your nostalgia just gets really checked by the reality that you see in front of you. Mm, absolutely. Well, you know, another another big, big part of the book is community, I thought. I mean, a huge part of the book is community. And um, Nima, I love how you write. You write in, in one part, you say, um, we don't say I love you in my community. We cook for you. We host you in our homes. We accept your loved ones as our our own. And I know I'm going to say this wrong, but Gara Avajo um, was the truest expression of unconditional love I could have asked for. It meant that finally, Laura, your, your partner, and and I could come home to them together. Maybe just talk a little bit about your your idea here of community. Yeah, I think my understanding of community is uh, really a product of the intersection of two communities growing up, one being the Appalachian community that I was part of, and the other being the Indian immigrant community that I was part of. And both of those co communities understand love in a very similar way. So an intersection that I think if you didn't grow up at that intersection, you wouldn't know it. Uh, from the outside, I'm not sure anyone would say Indian immigrants and people in Appalachia have a ton in common, but this thing of the way that you show love is by showing up at the table, right? Or bringing people to your table is really at the core of both cultures. Um, and that it is like in our time spent with each other, it's in breaking bread with each other, it's in that slowdown, take time, listen to what people have to say, that that's how you build with one another. Um, is really, really integral to both communities. It is also a strange thing living in New England um, because that's not necessarily how people understand community here. And I've lived here for a long time. I've lived here for almost two decades, um, almost as long as I lived in Appalachia. And I'm not sure I still even now could tell you what the definition is of community here. Uh, I'm not sure I figured out the rules in the same way that I feel like I know the rules growing up, like I understood those rules. I knew how to engage with those rules of community. Um, I, I feel like as an adult, I don't know how to, I don't think I know how to find them here in the same way. Well, well, that was actually one of my, one of my later questions was this, this distinction between, yeah, community, the community you found there and the community you found here in, Bo in the Boston area. Um, has it been possible to find a sense of community here that you that you experienced back there or have you have you found something is it just been different i think that i found it with individual people um like i there are people in boston who feel like home to me i have a neighbor who I have one neighbor who's like she is my neighbor who feels like a pamela circle neighbor <laughs> you know right and the depth of that relationship and the closeness and the ability to sort of both like drop off food and also ask for help and do all those things like with her. I really feel like I do have that. I think the scale is really different. I think here, um, I feel it in the relationships where I've sort of had the most time um, to really delve into those relationships. 
But I also think the number of people with whom you're able to do that is really circumscribed by the sort of pace of life here, which just moves faster. Um, people are going a lot faster, commutes are a lot longer, work is of a different sort of culture. The culture around work, I think, is really different. People don't turn off as easily. People don't slow down as easily. And so I think while there are certain people or certain relationships where I feel that Pamela Circle feeling, um, I don't feel like I live on Pamela Circle anymore. Hmm. I kind of feel like I'm just always chasing Pamela Circle um, <laughs> or chasing that feeling and kind of like looking for it, trying to find it, but it, it is not the place I live. Well, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, you, you wrote in the book, for all the challenges the pandemic has thrown at us, there has been the realization too that we can slow down when forced to, that we can care for each other when the moment demands of it of us, that our failure to neighbor is not a failure of character, it is a failure of the way our society is designed, which is, and I guess, and I guess perhaps here in Boston, Mass, in a city, in a big city, Massachusetts, or Boston, maybe even just more so, it's just designed in a way that makes it, makes it harder, I guess. I think so. I, I mean, I think it's harder to be human with people here. And I think it is a strange thing for there to be like a, I wouldn't call it like an upside, but I do think that there was this moment of potential learning during the most intense moments of the pandemic where like, there was an opportunity to say, huh, like maybe we've been doing things the wrong way and maybe we could do them differently, right? And maybe we don't have to just go back to doing everything the way we did before. And I was really hopeful that we were gonna learn something and maybe shift some ways. And you know, I think some people have shifted or some spaces have shifted, but on the whole, I feel kind of sad that um, a lot of that learning kind of went by the wayside. Um, and that the things people did, ex they did exercise some muscles around slowing down and they did exercise some of those muscles around like, oh, like you don't have to like do doing like relationship building doesn't have to be about spending lots of money or going to lots of places, but that like being with each other can be the doing, um, that learning, like I hoped it would last longer and I, I, I don't feel like it has, I feel like it's kind of gone by the wayside again. Yeah kind of a lost lost opportunity here. I think so I think so unfortunately normal is overrated in my opinion but yeah. here we are seriously I know I know people um people sort of hunger they're like oh if it could only be like 2019 but you know it's funny I remember walking around Boston in 2019 and just walking through the city and I felt like everybody no one was looking up like everybody yeah. had their head buried in a phone in 2019. And I'm like, this is not great at all. No, no, not <laughs> at all. I mean, that, like, you know, I, my partner makes fun of me. I mean, in a loving way, but like I, you know, I was raised, Appalachia is interesting in that it is like this mix of Rust Belt culture and Southern culture. It really sits at the, at the intersection of those two. But like part of the Southern culture is like, you greet people when you pass them on the street. Like you would never not, it's rude. If you're, in enough distance with somebody, if you're close enough that they could hear you and see you, you should say hello. Um, and you know, I walk around my neighborhood in, in, in Boston and like, I might as well be invisible to about 80% of the people. <laughs> like I say, hello, I smile, make eye contact. And it's just like, they like look right through me. Right. And I'm like, what, this is a very odd, <laughs> I don't understand it. Like it's okay to acknowledge people's humanity. Like that's really all right to do. <laughs> Um, and yet we, we don't do it here. Um, 
And, but during sort of like the height of lockdown, I did feel like people were doing that more. They, they were more hungry to be seen themselves. And so that let them kind of also be more willing to see other people. Right. And I think that's that 2019 people were not that hungry to be seen. And so they didn't see other people. I kind of feel like we've returned to that again in 2022. Oh, yeah, that's too bad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. That, um, so, um, Nima, you know, and, and I hope people will read this book because that, and then they'll appreciate all the, the characters and, and the, but are you still in touch with, um, like, 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 you know, some of these, some of these folks in the book, your, your, your Indian aunties and uncles. And I mean, there were just some, your, your coach, um, who, that was a fun chapter. I really enjoyed that yeah. the chapter with your basketball coach, Mr. Bradford. Um, I, I coach basketball myself, so I could really, I could really appreciate that. But, um, are, are you in touch with a lot of these people? Yeah. I mean, very much, obviously like, um, you know, uh, I'm 43. So my parents' generation, um, are aging and some folks have passed away. Mr. Bradford actually passed away. Ooh, I think it's been about 14 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but something really amazing that happened, um, or has happened, I think, with the publication of this book is that, you know, for his family, this is kind of an amazing thing too, which is like, the person they knew and I knew is like really honored on those pages. And so I've gotten to see his children at a bunch of readings and they've been like super excited and supportive. And I think really moved um, by, by having their dad honored um, in, in that way. Um, And I think similarly, like for my aunties and uncles, like, you know, I, I think, um, I think we all lived in West Virginia thinking we had this like very strange niche experience that no one was ever going to understand. Like when I went to college, I went to Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh and people assumed that because I was Indian and Gujarati specifically, like I had to be from New Jersey, right? Like, because that's where most of the Gujaratis are. So this idea that you could be Indian and from West Virginia, (laughs) even other Indian people didn't believe that. Never mind anyone else. Like it, it was so anomalous. Right. And so I think for a lot of, and yet it's not a small community. There are a hundred families. Um, I mean, it's not huge, but it's not insignificant. And so I think for a lot of them, like seeing their story, like in print um, has been a really powerful validation of this experience that like we all thought we were having that no one would know about. And now, now people can know about it. Um, people can learn about it. People can pick up a cover of a book and see us on that cover. There's something really powerful about that. Uh, and so that's been a, I was nervous. Like I didn't know how people were going to respond, um, to the stories being told. And it's been a really lovely upside that I think for a lot of people, it's validated their experience and, um, and honored it in a way that I think was like unexpected for them. Um, and that they really, really loved. Awesome. That's so cool. This episode's sponsor is Microbiome Labs. For the last nine years, Microbiome Labs has been committed to advancing understanding of the human microbiome. They're at the helm of innovation, putting new formulations and technology in the hands of healthcare practitioners and patients. Among many other novel innovations, MBL can now help improve the gut-brain connection with their ZenBiome Cope and ZenBiome Sleep products. Maybe it's been a while since you've re-examined your probiotic choices, the science around the microbiome or novel solutions that are coming out every day. Microbiome Labs will be here at the forefront of science, continuing to pioneer health in this space. 
For more about this strain and other gut microbiome products, just visit microbiomelabs.com. And as a special bonus for the Drew Perlman Show listeners out there, receive 15% off your total order from Microbiome Labs by just using the discount code that is in the show notes. So another, so beyond some of the terms we talked about, another a big theme that comes out is, is shame, the, the theme yeah. of shame. And, you know, I could definitely feel, and I don't know if this is something that, that, that you felt as well in writing the book, but you, you talk about how you had that writing professor who said to write with a clearer heart, Nima. And um, I, I could get the sense there was a tension between sort of writing openly and honestly versus not wanting to maybe upset or embarrass your parents and maybe just or your family just maybe maybe speak about that tension i guess yeah that's been like the tension of my whole writing life i think from <laughs> the time of 18 is how do you write nonfiction in a way that doesn't make everybody mad um <laughs> And, you know, in some ways, like 43 year old me is like, well, sometimes people are going to get mad and some things are too important to talk about. I think a thing I really have spent a lot of time thinking about is culturally for an Indian woman to like have opinions is already kind of a radical thing. And then to like publish those opinions is taking like 10 other steps in a radical direction. Right. (laughs) And the question that you have to ask is, well, why is that a radical thing? Um, And who does who does the silence serve? Like. Um, and, and I think often the silence serves patriarchy and the silence serves sexism and the silence serves perpetuating like harm, um, in a way to, to people who are more vulnerable or more minoritized. And so some of the work has been around like writing with a clearer heart means being more clear about who's served by silence and who's not, and being really clear in my mind about when I'm, when I'm breaking silence, like what's it for? Right. There's there's a whole essay about um, about my cousins uh, taking his own life. And that is not a thing that a lot of people probably would be particularly okay with me writing about. And yet um, the statistics around suicide for young South Asians in this country are out of control Um, and and not talking about it isn't serving any of us. Um, We might think it serves us because it doesn't, you know, reflect badly on us in a broad narrative. But in terms of the young people who are struggling, the silence doesn't serve them. And so I think that's been some of the math that I've had to do in my head is really thinking about the question of like, who is the silence serving? What is it for? Um, and is it a place where I need to say something because there's there's like something really important to unpack and lift up here? Mm. And I think the second thing that I've had to think about a lot is um, how you tell the story and what the function is of the story, which is to say, the goal in any of these essays is not about pointing the finger at anybody else. It's about like, how does my relationship with that person or how does my perspective or observation of that person, like, what does it reveal about me? Right. Ultimately I am the most implicated person in the book and that's how it should be. Um, and, and the weight of empathy should be with everybody else. Right. Like I also deserve empathy, but if I'm, the writer, I have a lot of power. And so I have the power to think about, you know, am I implicating people or am I extending empathy towards them? Um, and similarly, like, am I implicating myself? Am I asking questions about my choices and what I did and what I decided? And so I think 
Um, even in the stickiest essays in this book, of which there are two that are really sticky. One is Chemical Bonds, which is an essay about my dad and me and our relationships with work. And the other is The Blue-Red Divide, which is an essay about my relationship with my adopted grandfather and how it's shifted because of shifting politics. My hope is that in both of those essays, um, the empathy and love that I have for those individuals is really clear. That there's no way in which I am trying to shame or blame them, but rather that what I'm trying to do is grapple with how we've gotten to the places that we've gotten to. Um, yeah. that, that said, I also know that for some people, the very existence of this book is going to cause shame, right? It doesn't matter what it says inside. <laughs> it doesn't matter how nuanced it is. It doesn't matter that I've tried to write with tons of empathy. Like there's just going to be a shame response. And I've had to let go of that a little bit and be like, okay, like if you're just going to have a shame response and you can't even get into the pages to read what I've tried to do, like, I can't, I can't live my life, uh, kind of constrained by your shame response like that's just impossible and so totally. that's a long answer to your question <laughs> well, i could talk about shame for a whole episode probably well you know it's it's i mean i didn't get that sense at all that you were you know with your father or with miss it was mr b right i'm just yep. i mean i didn't get the i didn't get the sense at all that you were shaming them i, I mean I, I i got i got a lot i got a way more love for these people than anything but yeah, I mean, I guess it's the same. I mean, it's the same thing with so you know, as as far as this show here, you know, it's like you, you never know who's going to hear it or who's going to read it or who's going to you know respond to it. Who's out there right now? A young person, an old person. H have you had some any of your students or any people you, you know young people that that have that have read your book and have reached out to you and it's made a big impact? Yeah, it's actually been like probably the most moving part of of writing the book, which is like. Um, you know, I think I wrote the book first for me and then all other audiences were secondary in some way. Um, but meeting those audiences has been like a pretty transformative experience, particularly, um, I've been to Appalachia. I've gone down to do like mini book tours twice since the book came out and, you know, meeting young queer people in small towns in Appalachia and like independent bookstores in small Appalachian towns are doing a kind of work that I think people outside don't understand. Like they are havens. If you're a queer kid, if you're a kid who feels like you're on the margins, like that bookstore is where you're going to find your people and yourself. Right. Mm. So going into these bookstores and just being kind of like inundated by young queer people who are trying to figure out what does it mean for me to live in this place? Like, what does it mean for me to live in a state where policymakers are trying to erase me all the time. And I also love my family and I also love the place where I live, but this place doesn't love me back. Um, meeting young people who kind of are seeing themselves on the pages of this book and feeling like their, their experiences are mirrored in what they're reading. Um, it's been incredible. Um, it has been the most powerful part is just sort of like hearing young people say that they feel like they found like company in their feelings, right? That they don't feel as alone with their feelings because they saw their feelings mirrored on the pages of the book. Um, it's been really, really, really incredible. Um, and I'm super grateful to those readers. And it also just, I think, again, speaks to that question of, it goes back to the shame question, right? Which is like, okay, so I don't write this story because I'm worried about the shame it's gonna bring on people. And then those young kids continue to go 
feeling alone and feeling isolated and feeling like nobody shares their questions or nobody shares their their sort of worldview um, or nobody has lived the thing that they're living um, in 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 no small number of cases like that kind of stuff can be life and death for kids. No doubt. Um, it, it really can be right feeling alone versus feeling connected it is life or death for some people and so. That is also a thing I think that mitigates all the fear of shame because it's just like, I don't know, um, it's worth it, right? Like if, yeah. if I get a bunch of people who are mad at me, okay, be mad at me because this actually was medicine for somebody and that that's that's a gift I can give to somebody. I, I want to give it to them. Yeah, totally. Totally. Absolutely. That, 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 that is, yeah, that is like the best medicine um, to not, to not feel alone. And yeah, the book mm -hmm. book did, did such a great job of that. Um, Nima, a few, a few questions that I ask everybody that comes on the show. I'd love to, I'd love to ask you as well. Um, sure. so what are some of your daily practices that, that you do every day that make you feel the most alive? I go walking every morning at Jamaica Pond, which is Kettle Moraine, about five minutes from my house in the neighborhood of Jamaica Plain. It's one, 1.3 miles around. It's about a three mile walk by the time I go there and back. And I walk there every day as long as I can. Even in the winter, I have like a heated vest. Like I try really <laughs> hard to get there as long as it's bearable. Um, and it's, it's, it, that is really medicine for me. Um, it just, Going to the same place every day and observing the way in which it changes, I think just has been um, really helpful for me to kind of like keep returning and keep returning and keep returning to the space. I see the same animals every day. I watch them, you know, like, uh, I, I don't know. I feel like I've done a lot of thinking about like my own life and my own actions at that pond. And it's, um, yeah, it's, I, I don't feel like, I don't feel like done with the day or I don't feel like I've had a good day if I haven't had that walk. Nice. That's awesome. So if someone is listening, who's feeling powerless and hopeless for whatever reason, and, and they were with you right now, I know this is a, this is a heavy question, but no. uh, what, what might you tell them? I mean, I think that, um, where we find power and where we find hope is often in our connections, like connections with the people closest to us or to like get as close as you can. I think sometimes you feel the most unmoored when like everything feels really big and outside of your control or outside of your realm, right? And so what are the ways in which you can kind of like bring things closer back to yourself? So what you're focusing on is like your relationships around you. And are there places in those relationships where you can exert some control, where you can find some hope? Um, something that we did sort of like in, again, going back to sort of like peak pandemic, like when things were very locked down and it was really hard, um, is my partner and I did something we called playing pandemic Santa, um, which is we would cook like we'd make something we'd cook salsa we'd make a sweet we'd you know and then we just like would drive and do drop-offs to people right and it was like all right can we like offer some joy to the people around us just a little bit of joy and like if we can offer that joy to people how does that help us to then feel a little bit less powerless because you know we we can't do a lot of things right now but what we can do is like try to think about how we're offering joy to other people and so i think if you can if you can sort of like think about that of like what do i actually have control over like where is a place where i can 
have an impact on a relationship or offer some joy to someone, I think it can help you make the world smaller again. Um, and I think ultimately, like, I mean, we all are fighting like big fights on the structural level, but also like in order to sustain yourself in those fights, you have to feel like you're having some impact. And that means I think you have to think about what you're doing in the small, in your closest relationships, that's also feeding you. Um, because otherwise it can get really hopeless and really, really powerless really fast. Mm. Pandemic Santa. That is so, that is awesome. That is so cool. <laughs> did you, did you both dress up? Um, did you have the Santa hats <laughs> and uh, how did you? I dressed up as the Santa for my students on Zoom. <laughs> I dressed up as a lot of things on Zoom, a chicken, a turkey. I mean, <laughs> I was trying anything to get my students to learn on Zoom. But no, um, because it was happening at all times of year, we didn't uh, necessarily dress up, but we would like decorate the take like we were using all of our takeout containers also of which there were obscene amounts during that time <laughs> right so we would like decorate the takeout containers and yeah we just really tried to think about like what is a thing we can make lots of and go drive it around to people and that's so awesome yeah you know it's interesting the the very first episode that i that i ever recorded on the show i had a gentleman on the show mandar opti and um he he does all this great healing work in communities and and I asked him that same question and he said, he, 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 he was, he, it echoes similar to what you said. He said, you know, go, go out there and find someone who's feeling even lower than you are and go help them. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was just such a great, that, 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 that need for service and, and helping and healing others. And, um, you know, there's something, there's something really powerful and healing about that, but that's, I think there is, I love how you put it. Yeah, I think I think that that is, um, yeah, I think it's like the space where you can find some hope is in sort of like the people closest to you and thinking about, is there anything I can do to ease their path right now, right? Um, or is there something I can do to ease my own path also? It doesn't always have to be outward facing. Like if you can look at your own life and think about what could I do to give myself some more ease, I think that's also a place where you can get back some of that power. Oh, that's a, such a great point. Um, okay, so final question here. If you had the opportunity to travel back in time 30 years um, to your younger self on, on Pamela's circle and, and, you could, and you could visit her, what, what words of wisdom might your current self share with your younger self? Um, I think I would have told my younger self to have more faith in people. Um, and to trust that like, uh, love is bigger than like any preconceived notions or prejudices that people might have. And that doesn't always hold, but I think for me, the amount of silence that there was in Appalachia around queerness made it. So it took me a really long time to both figure out who I was and also to come out to people who I really cared about, um, and ultimately like that was me doubting those relationships, but it didn't bear out. Like people were loving and supportive and lovely, right? And so really I was withholding because of my fear, but not because of anything they were doing. Um, and so I think I would want my younger self to have more faith that like people can hold complexity and they can hold hard things if you trust them to. Um, and that by and large, people who love you won't, they won't fail you. Um, they'll show up for you. Mm. I don't think I knew that when I was a kid. I I didn't trust that. 
Yeah, that's that's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. Um, yeah, you had a line in the book um, when you were talking with some of your aunties um, where you write uh, that for my mother's love dampened any prejudice that might have occurred to them otherwise. So, uh, yeah, it's a big theme in the book. I, I love that about the love sort of outweigh. I mean, you know, outweighing the, you know, which is what you which is what you've said. Um, Nima, people that want to learn more about you or want to want to get your book, wh where should they go? Uh, you want to learn more about me, you can go to my website, which is just nimaavashia.com. Um, and if you want to get the book, you can get it at any major bookseller. Um, it's available everywhere. I encourage you to go to your local bookstore if you live in the Boston area. Um, Brookline Booksmith, Porter Square Books, Newtonville <laughs> Books, Paper Cuts, All She Wrote Books are, have been amazing supportive bookstores. Have the book on their shelves so you can walk in and get it. But if you're not in the Boston area, then yeah, you can get it. Um, from Bookshop, or you can get it from West Virginia University Press um, directly from their website. So you can also get it at the at the the Capital A store, but I encourage you to go elsewhere <laughs> to get your book. Are you working on anything anything new? Or I am. Uh, I'm like a third of a way into a second essay collection, um, which is about rules. Um, it's about rules that are communicated to us about gender and race and um, work and all kinds of things. And then like, what happens when you're a person who sort of starts to question all of those rules? Um, and what happens when you sort of start to ask, well, what if, what would happen if I didn't follow this rule? Can't wait. Can't wait to read that. That sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> Nima, thank you so much for uh, coming on today. Thank you so much for having me, Drew. It was really lovely to talk to you. Thank you for listening to The Drew Perlman Show. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. In the words of Mark Twain, 20 years from now, you will be more disappointed by the things you didn't do than the things you did do. So throw off the bow lines, sail away from the safe harbor, and catch the trade winds in your sails. Explore, dream, discover, and stay well, everyone.